Welcome. Those of you listening online, welcome Chicago cohort to our chapel. We are continuing our series on the Pentecostal handbook, also known as the book of Acts. Thank you, Pastor. Bible students, you should have known that one. Come on. The book of Acts. Today we're in Acts 17 where Paul goes to Mars Hill to, uh, to talk to the Stoic philosophers. It's going to be a real fascinating, one of my favorite passages here to see how the Christian worldview engages the, the secular worldview of its day. Let's welcome up our pastor and visionary leader, Joe Y. Rostek. Thank you, my brother. Thank you. All right, let's get into Acts chapter 7. I'm uh, 17, rather. I'm very excited. Very excited. So many things to get into. Don't have a lot of time to introduce it. But uh, today we'll be learning in the handbook about Paul and how he continued to reach the major cities of Rome, starting with the Jews. Two instances of revival or riot in Thessalonica and Berea. Today my family uh, calls it Thessaloniki, my Greek family. That's where they're from. And the famous Mars Hill sermon from Paul to the Greek philosophers. Starting in Acts chapter 17, verse 1, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphilius and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. Now what I want you to notice right here is that these are major cities Paul is traveling through. If you have any questions about the second missionary journey, you can always go to my notes and you can see that I contain, uh, I have there the, uh, the journey. It contains all of the pathways. And now we're up here towards a Thessalonica and Amphilisis. Oh my gosh, I said it so well when I read it. And, and Apollonia. I practiced this in the car. One day I'm not going to have to apologize for my bad pronunciation because I hear it over and over again. Amphilius, Amphilius, there we go, Amphilius, Amphilius, yes, and then Apollonia, and then he goes to Thessalonica, and then we're going to now see how he goes all the way down there to Athens. So once again, the Pentecostal way is to do urban missions. The Pentecostal way is to do urban missions. Rural missions is wonderful. Nothing wrong with rural missions. God can use rural missions. But as we are now seeing in the Pentecostal handbook, the method, the primary strategy was urban missions. Does everybody see that? These are always major cities. So verse 2, as it was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue on Three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that Jesus had to suffer and rise from the dead. And as was the Pentecostal custom, it was to start with the Jewish people in the cities. And we should still be able to preach to a Jewish person the centrality of Jesus Christ. Go to Romans chapter 1 verse 16. You can see how Paul applied this command of Jesus to reach the lost sleep of Israel, to do that first and, uh, you know, foremost, and also to start in Jerusalem and then reach the other most parts of the world. He says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. So each one of you should be able to refute Jewish arguments um, against Jesus not being the Messiah. Every one of you should be able to do that. Could you do it right now if I had you come up here and do a mock discussion? Amen. No, I'm, I'm just making sure. Could you do it? I hope that you can. I hope you know the prophecies to go to. I hope you know how to explain that Jesus is equal to God, but it's not the Father. 
to avoid that heresy, and that you could show the atoning work of Jesus is fulfilled, uh, rather the atoning work of the Old Testament covenant is fulfilled in Jesus as the Passover lamb. That's very significant to explain that to Jewish believers. And that then you could also explain that his priestly duty is now forever, forever as the God-man seated next to the Father, as Hebrew tells us, always making intercession for us from, from the one sacrifice once and for all, which has perfected us. Amen? Can I hear an amen? Amen. Thank you. So that's what Paul did, and we should be able to do the same thing, that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Here, whenever we see God-fearing Greeks, that lets us know they're saved, that they were already in the Old Covenant saved by what God had given Moses to do, and now they convert to Christianity. We shouldn't doubt whether or not they would have died and gone to heaven or not, uh, because where would have Moses, uh, where did Moses go when he died? Where did Zechariah go? You know, even John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, right? We believe that God's covenant extends to these people, but now they are brought into the new covenant, and that's uh, what I would guess, other than honoring the covenant, Jesus' reason for us going to them first, in this sense, especially in that generation, was because they were God-fearers. There were people who were right with God, and they now needed to see how the covenant, uh, the uh, Mosaic covenant, was now filled in Christ. And then quite a prominent uh, group of women. Okay, now, just to help you guys understand this, according to Luke, if he does not put God-fearing before the word Greek, what do we now assume he wants us to know? Are they saved or unsaved? Unsaved. So when he describes them as God-fearing, we are then to know they are saved or unsaved? Saved. Okay, thank you. All right. Now, verse 5. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in that city. Do you see revival and riot? Sometimes it's not revival or riot. Sometimes it's revival, then riot. As a matter of fact, we see that more often, even with Paul getting stoned in, um, <clears throat> don't tell me this city, where Paul got stoned, they started off worshiping as a god, and then they turned on him. I want to say it was Derby. Or Lystra, I think it was Lystra. Was it Lystra? <clears throat> Let's have you guys find it for me, please. Where did Paul get stoned? It was either in Derby or Lystra. They're right next to each other in the in the, the book of Acts. So he got stoned, but it started off as them proclaiming him as a god, and then it turned into him. Lystra. Okay, thank you, Pastor Jared. And this happens here. They, you know, there's a lot of them that agree with him and become Christians, and then there's others that don't want to follow Christ, and so now they're going to cause a riot, literally. Now watch how they do this. They rush to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. So they're going to get this disciple named Jason, which Jason is a biblical name there. Isn't that cool? We have a Christian in our church named Jason, right? But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city council, shouting, these men have caused trouble all over the world, have now come here. Now, isn't that something? Imagine if they couldn't find Jared or I, and they literally pull out Jason. And now Jason is suffering. He's one of our teenagers that was one to the Lord in a school club. Wouldn't that be just something that this would happen? Now, notice the accusation against us is that we have caused trouble all over the whole world. Now, at this point, 
Sometimes a Calvinist will point to this and say, see, the world here is a metaphor for a lot of people. So when it says Jesus loved the world or God so loved the world, that that just means he loved a lot of people because was it true that the entire globe was turned upside down because of the preaching of the gospel? Was Native America touched yet? No, Native America hadn't been touched yet. Was India touched yet? No, so they'll try to say, see, world doesn't always mean world. But how do we determine the context of a word? Or rather, the meaning of a word in its context, right? That's how we determine the meaning. So is is it here meant to mean literally the entire globe? Is the author of Luke's who's telling us the history literally means that now everybody in China now knows about Jesus? No, it's obvious from the context that world there does mean a whole lot of people. Now, in the context of John, John the gospel writer, does world ever mean less than all the people? No. There's only one other place in John where he says, all the whole world, the Jewish people said, all the whole world has gone out to see him. But that was the Jewish people using, once again, the idiom world to mean a whole lot of people. But whenever John is writing, John himself, he never uses that idiom himself. He uses the world as all of the world. And that's why John 3.16 means what it means from the mouth of Jesus because we know that John interprets it in 1 John where he says that those of the world do not love the world nor anything in the world because those who love the world do not have the love of the Father in them. Now, is that just part of the population of the world? No, that's the entire world. So what's the world Jesus dies for? The sinful world where the entirety of it is against God. You see, you see what I'm saying there? The gospel writer, John, never uses world himself to mean an idiom or a metaphor for a large group of people. He always uses it for the entire globe that is under the power of Satan. Now, the next thing that you see is that they had a reputation for causing trouble. Is it true, according to God's standard of good and evil, trouble and and not trouble, is it true that they're causing trouble? No. When, When the prophets were called troublemakers, the good prophets, is that true that they were the troublemakers? No. What does Elijah say? I'm not the troublemaker. It's Elijah, not Elisha, right? Okay, good, thank you. Elijah says, I'm not the troublemaker. You're the troublemaker. You guys are the troublemakers. But notice how they say, we're the troublemakers. And so right now, just think about this. And I want to talk a lot of application here today. So think about uh, today how we're called the troublemakers. Just think about this. I, as an Anglo pastor, do not support the Black Lives Matter movement Because I see it bring rebellion against police officers, promote the LGBT community, and stand for abortion, okay? Now, I am called a racist, right? I am called a racist, okay? Joe's called a racist. But just by my stance alone in the pro-life movement to save black babies, if Joe's way would have been right, 18 million upwards of 18 million black babies would be here right now. Now, who's the racist? Black Lives Matter is the racist. They support the genocide of their own people. Just think about it. Come on, let's make it real. Let's just think about that. Who's really the racist? Am I the racist? Because I believe each issue with police brutality, which only accounts for a few hundred 
if even that a year? Whereas tens of thousands of black babies are being killed, if I say, let them go to court, let justice be served, let us make sure that this is held in trial and court, etc., but for sure, stop killing black babies. I'm the racist. You all get that? You all looking at me crazy. You're racist too. You're racist too if you believe the way your pastor believes. Do you believe the way I believe? Then you're considered, you all quiet now, huh? Then you're considered racist too. You're considered a racist to your own people. Two African-Americans in our congregation right now who you guys can't see online, but they're considered a racist to their own people because they don't support that narrative. Isn't that something? How about this? I'm considered a homophobic. I'm considered somebody that hates homosexuals because of why? Here is my answer, and I know there's a difference, but let me just lump them all together because they do all the time, LGBT, lesbian, gay, transgender, and bi, okay, LGB, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. Now watch this. I am considered the troublemaker because I believe all the issues are of the mind in the soul. All of those issues are in the mind, and they're solved with the soul. That's what I believe, right? Now, what do they believe? Start just with the lesbian and the gay. That having sex with each other of the same sex is good. They don't think that's trouble. Whereas if everybody lived that way, there would never be another baby born. Right? Two, what we even use, by the way, even in sound equipment, male sockets and female sockets, if you put two Male sockets together, a baby can never be born. If you put two female sockets together, a baby can never be born. Now, I'm called a troublemaker, right? Bisexuality, same kind of thing, but let's go now to transgenderism. Because I believe this, the, the problem of gender identity is solved in the mind and the soul, not through electrotherapy, not just praying the gay away, not underestimating the trouble that it causes people, but I believe the trouble is settled in the soul. They want to solve it by mutilating women's body parts to become men. Fully functioning breasts, which were meant to suckle children, the most purest way of feeding a baby, cut off and mutilated, and then their male or female genitalia to be mutilated to image something else of the opposite sex, which can never function, produce semen as a woman becoming a man. The male genitalia they try to form in her body with her female genitalia will never produce semen or seed. And the male's genitalia that becomes the female by cutting it, deforming it, inserting it, reversing it. Are you listening? never can become a womb for a baby. And yet I'm the troublemaker now. I guess I'm all alone in this Presbyterian church today. Do I have any amens from any Pentecostals? Okay. See, we're labeled now the troublemakers. Just those two issues right there. Do you stand for justice for the black community? Yes. I stand first and foremost for the 18 million slaughtered in abortion clinics. Do you stand with me there? If you don't, we're, we're wasting our time on everything else. Everything else is but a blip of the, the, the murder, the killings. Are you listening? Let us fight there and fight everything else because here's the deal. The same thing is with the school shootings. You used to be able to bring guns to school for demonstration for shooting classes, and on your property, on, on the school property with a gun rack, 
in your vehicle. Dr. James White has a picture of him with a 30 out rifle in the classroom as he was doing a mock trial with uh, Lee Harry Oswald and the murder of uh, the assassination of Kennedy. They were doing a mock trial in their class. He was a lawyer. He, he brought it in as an evidence, right? No problem. No, no one thought anything of it. What changed over the last 30 years? Gun ownership? Did gun ownership change? Did handguns, weapons change? No. Uh, M16s, these kinds of weapons have always been around. They were only banned for a short time, semi-automatic. Those kind of rifles were only banned for a short time, and it changed nothing with the school shootings. Nothing. No statistical change. What changed? Was it guns? Was it weapons? No, no, no. What changed? People's hearts. The value of life. See, how can, we, how can we agree on social justice issues when you don't even agree what a human being is? Right? How can we even do that? So do we neglect police brutality? Absolutely not. We stand with those who are standing with that. And there are many great African-American leaders, people in politics who are standing against the, the injustice of the police to the inner city. Wonderful. Stand with those great people. But you do not have to neglect the greatest call, which is to stand for the lives of the unborn. Are you listening to me? Just to give you an example, Martin Luther King Jr.'s niece, what is her name? Alveda, of course, wants injustice to stop with the police in the inner city. But her number one fight for the black community is to stop the slaughter of unborn children. And then all of these people who think that we who are pro-life are not for the support and the fullness of life are just telling devil's lies. Just stop right now just for a second, just for a second, and see what this church, as if there was no other church in the community, just this church alone has offered a large community on the west side. What have we offered them? Rides to church. Doesn't seem like much, but what happens at church? You learn morality. If everyone we offered a ride to church from the west side came, which is a predominantly African-American community, came to church, what would they learn if they just listened and obeyed the teachings of Christ? Thou shalt not murder. Be of a sober mind. Obey your parents, right? Would that right there solve the problem of the immorality issue? Absolutely. Now, Study to show yourself approved. As you read the scriptures and study, do that in your books. Right now, would they begin to go to school? Would they then take, uh, 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 to take, for, for, uh, take advantage of the programs that are offered? Yes, there's an after-school program right now in that community. Now, that's another church, but it's offered there, and there's after-school programs offered by the schools, lunch programs to pay for their lunch. All they would have to do is just get themselves up, go to school, lunch is paid for, after-school program, come to church two or three times a week, problem solved. Has it worked? I've seen it work. I'll name their names. Joe from the Calio, now happily married with children who did that while his mother lived in the projects of the Calio Projects in New Orleans, decided to go to church, go to school, obeyed the commands of God, graduated high school, joined the military, did awesome in the military, did further schooling, married a good Christian woman. I was the best man in his wedding. Now lives in a great house, has a great family, raises his children. Generational curses of project, violent, baby daddy, whatever, curse, broken, over, done. Amen. And there's others here right now I could point to doing the same thing. 
Now, what about the gay and lesbian agenda? Same, uh, the, the problems there, same thing. How would we solve the problem? The great anguish that they have in their soul because they, don't, are, they are not natural in their affection. They're not natural in their identity. It's abnormal. It's abnormal. It's not normal. That's why they have to, quote, unquote, come out. If it was normal, do I have to come out as a heterosexual? No, because that's what? That's normal. You have to come out as abnormal, and then now we're expected to celebrate you, right? But we say there's a problem. We're not going to electric shock you. And by the way, that was done not just by Christians. That was done by non-Christians. The idea that there's going to be the, the kind of electroshock, that was done not only in gay issues, but in all kinds of issues. And they still do electrotherapy in some ways, by the way. Chancellor was just telling me about electrotherapy he was getting. Whether or not that had anything to do with, with Christians is not the point. The point is, here's what Christians say. God can give you a new self. Get born again. And then now, what happens? The gay teenager, the gay child comes, says, I'm same-sex attracted. Do we treat them any different than someone who says, I'm attracted to multiple women? I, I have a hard time uh, keeping my eyes pure from pornography. No. We begin to teach them the things of God. What do they do? They come to church, right? Here we go again. Doesn't sound like a lot, but if you believe the Bible, it's significant, right? Now it teaches them who they are. They begin to see it as a sin. They repent of it, and they ask God to cleanse them, and they ask God for the grace to live out holy, just as every other Christian is asking God for the grace to live out holy. Then they begin to sense that new attractions, possibly, not all the time, possibly, can be awoken in them because of maybe issues they did not realize had hindered them. Maybe they had traumatic experiences growing up. Many of them still do. Those who choose a gay, a gay or lesbian lifestyle have had traumatic experiences with the same sex or the opposite sex growing up. Men being molested by other men, girls being molested by boys. These are, these are still found in a great majority, at least of the statistics I've checked, of those who are in the lifestyle. But let's just say there's no real inner healing that has to happen from their past, and they have this struggle. But they listen to their body now because their body still produces hormones, doesn't it? Their body still has sexual desire. Their body could be reawoken through the training of the mind to be attracted to what those hormones were meant to, to be used for, right? They say they want to believe in science until it comes down to these issues. Science says hormones and pheromones attract us to each other to propagate the human race. And with the help of the Holy Spirit and the mind, those could become enjoyable things. Now, do I know people? who have had same-sex attractions, identified as gay, lesbian, or bi, and are now serving God, some of them married, and have happily, happily married families? Absolutely. And I'm not just talking in our few years here of being a church. I have a woman that was in my master's commission. Her name is Angie. She's been married now for over 10 years, has two, if not three, beautiful children, and she'll tell you her testimony any given day of the week. She's proud of what God has done in her life. But are there some that may remain single? Absolutely. So sexuality does not determine your happiness in life. Jesus did not operate in sexuality, and he was filled with the presence of his Father. So if you still do not feel the transformation of soul reunites you to the activity of your body and hormones for what you were made for, and you still feel that the temptation to live an abnormal lifestyle is greater than that, then just count it as dead, give yourself to Christ, and be single. The greatest professor I had, my favorite professor in SUM, was Professor Joanne Miller, never married. Never married. 
Is there anything wrong with her? No, she has many spiritual children. So do you see how it says, these men have caused trouble all over the world, and now they've come here. Do you see how this can be you, not too, too distant of a future? Look at you. Look at you. What's wrong? What, I, I saw in the Breakfast Club, and this to me, just I could not believe, that Stephen Furtick not only had that foul, that foul demonic man on a show that he put before his kids, but he called him by his blasphemous name, by his blasphemous name. That disgusted me. That disgusted me to no end, having that man on there, uh, Charmaine the God, Charlemagne the false God. He called him that. He talked to him as that. Disgusting. Disgusting. Are you listening to me? But on the breakfast club, I've seen these men put other men on blast. What are you doing for the black community? They put a Post Malone on blast. What are you doing since you look like a black boy? You wrapped the, the black community. What are you doing for the black community? I would want to stick my finger right back in Charlemagne the false god's face and say, I'm doing what you could never do with your demonic spirit, helping the black community get the gospel and helping them no longer murder their children and helping them to live pure and holy and to become men and women of God. And if you ask me what am I doing for the white community, the same exact thing. Are you listening to me? Some people think that because a pastor like me voted for Trump, like I have some affinity to Trump, I will preach the gospel to him and he will go to hell without Jesus. And there's been a lot more presidents that look like me than look like Barack Obama, and I've said most of them are going to hell without Christ too, starting with the Clintons. Are you listening to me? So I am no friend of someone who looks like me thinking that I get a privilege out of that, to hell with that. I will suffer with my gente. I will suffer with my people. I will suffer with the Christians around the world before I will ever take a privilege that causes me to compromise my gospel. Are you listening to me? Now, will I be shrewd and use whatever privilege I have? Yes, and I say you do the same thing. You have a privilege in the hood that I don't have. Use your privilege, preach the gospel to your people. You have a privilege with the Latino people. You use that privilege, preach to them. They may not listen to me the same way. And it may be true. I have a privilege downtown, whatever, you know, at some building where they all look like me. They work at the bank. I may have a privilege there. But all of us can't use that privilege to compromise the gospel and expect souls to get saved. Because if we start preaching the gospel, you to the Latinos, you to the African Americans, me to the white boys at Chicago Shore, we're all going to be looked at as troublemakers because the gospel makes trouble with the sinful ways of man. And those who can repent and humble themselves will come under the blessing of the Christian faith. Amen? So Mayor Rahm Emanuel, I could care less. You know, we, we have African-American leaders in this city. If they ever wanted to run for uh, a government office, I would vote for them in a heartbeat, these Christian men, over a white person. Are you listening to me? There was somebody that was competing for the Senate office versus Obama. Find out who that was because that was a godly man. There were two black men competing for the same Senate office. Obama won. I would vote for that man to be mayor any day. You know which guy I'm talking about, right? What's that? 
Alan Keyes, I believe, confirmed that it's Alan. I'll vote for him any day. I'll vote for Alan West any day. Are you listening to me? It has nothing to do with my mindset of what color you are. It has nothing to do with that. That's the gospel, man. And that's what a lot of us got to go back to. And I got a lot of friends on Facebook that are African-American that are saying the same thing because they came from the church of God in Christ. They came from holiness movements. They, they understand that this is no longer the way to do politics. The civil rights has passed them, has left them and gone in a different direction. That's why I talk about Pastor Thomas Gross, one of my pastors from New Orleans. Civil rights left him a long time ago when they started taking bribes from Planned Parenthood and the Democratic Party to promote abortion and genocide in that community. Are you listening to me? I got the documentary right now in Black History Month. Watch it about black men exposing what's going on in the NAACP and who they want to run Planned Parenthood right now, a black feminist. And it's a joke, my friends. It's a joke. But I want you to see what else, because I ain't even halfway done through this message. Are you listening? I said, are you listening? Amen. Let me just put this on pause. Alan Keyes. Amen. Now watch what they do because you ever heard the saying, the enemy of my enemy is my what? Is my friend. So Jewish people bring the Christian people, most of them Jewish converts, to the Roman leadership. Verse 7, and Jason welcomed them into his house. That's their their, uh, accusation. They are all defying Caesar's decrees saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. See, when your enemies, enemies become friends, you know that you're doing something right. The Jewish people end up getting their temple destroyed about 20, 30 years later from this by the Romans. They're no friends of the Jews. But they tried to unite together to bring down the Christians. Who are the two bedfellows right now that are trying to bring down the Christian movement, not only in this country, but around the world? Who are they, my brother? Communism and Islam. Communism with secularism, materialism, there's no Godism with Islam. That's why when you see a pro-women's march, pro-abortion women's march against Christianity, it's led by a woman in a hijab. Linda Sassour leading the women's march for women's rights. What a joke. Saudi Arabia's women just got been able to drive. And that's the home of her demonic Mecca where they pray five times a day to their demon God. Are you listening? And now you're going to say that the Muslim woman is going to teach an American Christian about women's rights. Can you believe this? This is the insanity of the world. Who are the first ones the Muslims take down? The kufar, the infidel, the one who doesn't believe in God. They will throw them off of buildings and burn them. They're commanded in their scriptures to give us land and to let us live among them. But they are commanded to kill the blasphemers. That's why Bill Maher and many of these libertarian secularists, even though some of them are atheists, have woken up like Sam Harris, and they understand, hey, Islam is not our friend. Islam is not the friend of the secularists, the communists, the socialists. 
but they're bedfellows right now. That's why Black Lives Matter, many of them have the support of the Muslim community. Why? Because they want to destabilize the Christian worldview in America. They want to destabilize the idea of Christianity. And they want to call Christianity the white man's religion. I have actually heard Louis Farrakhan and other uh, ignorant Muslims, ignoramus Muslims say that Christianity is the white man's religion. My friends, let me just help you with Black History Month again. Thank you, Jesus. Number one. It's out there right now by uh, a great African-American apologist. What do you mean? That guy, he's got this video right now you can go check out. What do you mean? He's making great videos. He's friends with David Wood, African-American apologist. Do you know that Christianity was a part of the African culture from day one? The Ethiopian eunuch? The Ethiopian people have been reached with the message of the Mosaic Covenant since the time of Solomon. Do you guys understand that? They trace back their history all the way to the time of Solomon. The Ethiopian eunuch was one of the first people led to the Lord. The Cyrenian people who laid hands on Paul and them and sent them out were from northern Africa. Before Christianity ever, ever reached Europe, it reached Africa. Before it ever reached Europe, it reached India. Before it ever reached Europe, it reached China. This is a Semitic group of people reaching these nations, and the ones, many of them were saying God-fearing Greeks, those are the ones who are already following a Jewish God. They were already going against their culture. Are you listening? They were already saying, it's not the Greek, it's not the Greek way, it's not the way it looks like my wife or I, because she's Greek and I'm Italian. Are you listening to me? Nations were already being reached from the Far East to Ethiopia being in covenant with the God of Israel. Come on, somebody. Athanasius, one of my favorite theologians. Read all you can about Athanasius when you have time. African brother. Praise God. They say Tertullian probably was an African brother. He de defined for us the Trinity. We were Christian. We were Christian. It wasn't until Islam, listen, who started the slave trade in mass ways. First of all, the African people, we already talked about this, enslaved the, themselves just like the Greeks enslaved them, their own people. You know, the Romans enslaved their own color of people. All of this, the Chinese people enslaved their own people. The Aztecs enslaved their own people. Right? But listen, it wasn't until Islam, the 8th and 9th century, that they came into Africa and united all of this uh, a tribal warfare and slave trade to make a business out of it. And it still continues today. Look up the Libyan slave trade. Look up the Libyan slave trade. Look up the Ethiopian slave trade. Look up the Sudanese slave trade. All of this still being done by Muslims. Hello, somebody. Look up the Nigerian slave trade, the sex trafficking of Nigerian girls. Come on. Why do I say all of that? Because Islam will lie with secularism to get you to believe Christianity is the fault of the world's problems. <laughs> that is the most ridiculous thing, but they'll get people to believe that. My friends, don't buy into that. And I'm not preaching Americanism. I'm saying whatever America does that's sinful is sinful. But there is no way in God's green earth you can ever point to any socialist, secularist, communist society that has ever compared with a Christian-based society. 
and certainly the worst, like the top 18 of women's violations, the worst place to live as a woman, like the top 18 countries to live out of the 20 are all Islamic. And the worst, not only for women, but also the worst human rights. Now, like I've always told you guys, they now want to point to Switzerland and uh, you know, these other small nations say, well, these secularist nations, you know, Canada or whatever. My friends, number one, if it wouldn't have been for America, all of these people would be wearing swastikas right now. That's the first thing. The second thing is, if it wasn't for Christian foundation in the Reformation that made these nations, they wouldn't even have the common sense they have to do what they've been doing. So we all believe that the only reason why they have the thou shall not murder stuff down pretty good is because they were taught by the reformers and such to do that. And then they made strict laws against their people. But give enough time, they will either be conquered or they themselves will be run by dictators. Just give them enough time. Are you listening? Germany was once a bastion, hello, of democracy and freedom. Give them enough time and they'll be taken over by dictators or... Uh, be conquered by other nations. So I'm not looking to a, a, a city nation, a nation with only a couple million people. Some of these nations, Chicago's bigger than. Are you listening? How many people are in Switzerland? Just tell me the, 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 the population of Switzerland. So we got two lessons right here, right at the beginning, Switzerland. They're going to say we're troublemakers. I hear it all the time, and it just, it just I can't even get it through my brain. I, I can't even understand it. Because it's so ignorant. We're troublemakers because we stand for the unborn, because we stand for the human dignity of sexuality, because we stand for 23 million, oh, 8.3 million, 8.3. Chicago's bigger than Switzerland. Don't tell me anything about that. If I did right now what they did here, I could do that. Take over everything, take away everybody's guns, you know, do this government leadership, yes. But like I said, how long do you think it's going to take before someone gets in charge that now oppresses the people or that little 8 million nation gets rocked by another country? The only reason why Switzerland, like I said, is not wearing a swastika or having the, uh, the sickle and the hammer over it from Russia is because we are here. Do not let anybody tell you otherwise. Whether you like America or not, that's the only reason why a whole bunch of stuff hasn't popped off right there in Europe. We stopped it twice in what we call world wars, amen? And the reason why you, California, if you've ever seen right now, um, Amazon has a show about if what would have happened if they would have won. Uh, only reason why California, fruits, nuts, and flakes, right, if they don't have Jesus and don't think right, the only reason why they're not wearing the, the sun on their, 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 their arms of Japan is because we had to fight and do what those guys weren't willing to do, right? You understand what I'm saying? And that's why you see most of the military bases that are in California, most of the military men are conservative Christian mindsets. So don't let people get you to think it's all fruits, nuts, and flakes. It's just a lot of that has taken over the media because of Hollywood and San Francisco and so forth. But there is a lot of great families, a lot of military families that have given their life over there in California, amen? And it's all different nationalities, red, yellow, black, and white all serving our country. And so, once again, we had to go to war. We had to fight, okay? Now, we know that we can be labeled troublemakers. We know that our enemies will join together against us, but we will still preach the gospel anyways. We will still preach, amen, in love, with compassion. I am not angry at Oprah Winfrey. I'm not, I'm not upset with uh, Charlemagne the false god, in the sense like my battle is against him. No, my battle is against his mindset. 
That's the, that's the battle against the spiritual world that he's bought into, the lies of Satan. That's my battle. And so I will expose his lies in love. Amen? Amen. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Notice that their pattern is to go to the Jewish people first. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than, the, those, than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, also did a number of prominent Greek women and men. So they became believers there. You notice this is the description of who they are which is wonderful. This is where we get the terminology to be a Berean, to be someone that searches or examines the Scriptures every day to see if it says what the apostles have claimed that it says. Imagine, just do this one day just for, um, uh, just for a test one day. See if you can go to what we would call the early church's Bible was the, New Test, uh, the Old Testament. Go back into the Old Testament one day and just test Paul. Was Paul telling you the truth? Go back one day and just look through Old Testament passages and, and the way they cite them and the way they use them and just see, was this the truth? If we never had a New Testament other than maybe the Gospels, just the revelation of Jesus coming, dying, resurrecting, would all of this still be true? Now, we know Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would come and teach us more, and he did through his apostles, but just the basics of it, you know, God in the flesh, being manifested among us, would that be true? Sounds like it in Isaiah. Chapter 9, verse 6, you shall call him, you know, mighty counselor, almighty God, etc., counselor, all of these wonderful things. And, well, there's a revelation there. I mean, it's going to be called God, basically. Uh, you know, um, uh, Genesis chapter 18, God walks among them, but yet God had told Moses, no one sees me face to face. And then at the same time, even in the same book, it says, Moses, talk to him face to face. What's going on? Or he says he sends his angel in front of them, and that his angel will not forgive any violation against these things. You know, if they don't follow, the angel will curse them and put them to death. You know, I mean, it just, it just sounds like there's these, there's these in, um, um, theophanies, in a sense. There's this interaction with God and man, and, and it says in other places that we're not supposed to have this kind of close-to-close -close interaction. So who are we interacting with, right? And then in Daniel, one of the later prophets says, there's the Ancient of Days here, and then one like the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days. Okay, that's cool. Maybe that's just an angel. But then hold on. Now he's given power and authority to rule all the world, and then everybody worships the Son of Man. Woo, I was troubled in my spirit, he said. See, now you get the revelation. Well, there's the Son. And then could you do that with the Holy Spirit? Maybe a little bit harder, but I believe that you could. You begin to see that the Holy Spirit's a part of creation, and yet he himself has a voice. He's not just a force. And then as the Holy Spirit begins to come, he empowers people and has a relationship with them and tells them what to say. As the Spirit of the Lord comes upon the prophets, right? It doesn't sound like a force. could be God's Wi-Fi and just the, just the middleman in a sense. But we begin to see in the life of Jesus, because we, we would need a little bit, I would say, just give me the Gospels and the Old Testament everything's good. Because without the Gospels, you don't have the life of Jesus, right? But I'm talking about the epistles. If you didn't have, because they're writing the epistles now. You get my experiment I'm saying here? And you see Jesus, and now Jesus clearly begins to dis di distinguish the Holy Spirit as a person. He's baptized. Father speaks. He's in the water as a son. Holy Spirit comes down. Now we understand the Holy Spirit's a person. It makes sense. We go back and see, yes, he's speaking. People speak. Right? Amen. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Praise God. Now, we see, but the Jews who were in Thessalonica, see, they weren't just happy with that, that now that they moved on. No, no, no. They had to come down there. 
They learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea. Some of them went there too, agitating the crowd, stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens, and they left, uh, then they left with the instructions for Silas and Timothy to join them there as soon as possible. Now, do I think they're running away in a scared way? No. They've already showed us that they're willing to die over and over again, right? Stephen, willing to die. Paul, willing to die. What they're doing is being strategic. You guys don't want it. You're causing a mess. We can't even go in public anymore because you're causing riots. We got to go to the next city. We got to go to the next city. You see the intensity that they had to keep moving, to keep moving. And the churches that they left there, they kept preaching. Not the, so don't ever think to yourself, the whole church left. No, just the leaders because the leaders were bringing all the attention. The other people, like Jason, stayed there, and they kept preaching, praise God, unto their death because many of them began to die. Now we're going to get into this very famous part of the Bible in our last 20 minutes here. Uh, it's about Paul going to the Greeks in Athens. Athens was the number one city of the Greeks. Remember that the Greeks used to rule the world. Uh, they came after the Persians. Okay, so basically just think world empires from Daniel. It's real easy if you think from Daniel and the vision he got. You got Babylon, then you got the Medes, Persians, Greeks, then Romans. And after the Romans, there's never really a dominating world power after that. And we now believe that the next dominating power are the nations coming together, as it talks about in Daniel and in Revelation, and that will be the one world government ruled by the Antichrist, okay? Because even Europe, England, uh, England, America has never been what they were, a dictatorship, a rulership over all the people they were with. Uh, even though uh, England colonized, don't get me wrong, and there was uh, colonization and conquistadors and those things, it just still wasn't the same way. Uh, they tried, but it just never really popped off for them because we rebelled. And then after we rebelled, there was a French rebellion, uh, et cetera. So uh, it never really got to be a global kind of thing. And that's what we're now waiting for in the end times, is that what we, that's what we believe is going to happen. So they now go here. Um, Paul goes here to Athens. And I got the links here for you guys, okay? So you know me. This is not my strength. Any good commentary will we'll just give you all the goodies you need. Any good Bible encyclopedia will give it to you. I just got Wikipedia because, you know, I just keep the link for, for your benefit on the notes, just so you can click on something and look at it. So he goes to Athens. He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jew and God-fearing Greeks. So he still goes to the synagogue first, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So now he's expanding his reach. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. You can search what these men were like. They had history in the Greek culture. Um, they had their own opinions about the world. The, the major difference between the Epicureans and the Stoics is the Stoics still somewhat believed in the gods in a literal sense, and the Epicureans uh, were more materialistic, but they had a lot in common as well. They believed in living for pleasure and what was best for you. They did not believe uh, just in a hedonism that would be uh, totally crazy. It was like a pleasure of wisdom and living the good life. That's how they would have determined what a pleasure would be good, at, what a beneficial pleasure would be, is it, does it uh, impact you in a good way. Very similar to secularists today, very similar. Uh, but the Stoics still had a belief of a, of a system of gods. Even though the Epicureans, they say, were materialists, they still had respect for the religion of their gods. And you'll even see this in India today. They may not even be a practicing Hindu, but they'll still respect their gods, right? They'll still be like, yeah, I really respect this. Even like Catholics, you know, maybe they're not really into going to church or Christ or Christmas and Easter, but they still respect the saints, okay? Okay. So he meets these philosophers and begins to debate with them. Here we understand that debating is not wrong. 
Debating is good. Jesus debated. Paul debated, as we're going to learn, Apollos debated. Uh, Stephen, Philip debated. Debates are fine as long as they are beneficial. You have to determine when they're not beneficial anymore. Uh, If the people are trying to kill you, that's a good sign they're not beneficial anymore. That's a lot of times when the Christians had to end their debates because they tried to start killing them. Um, When it starts getting personal to the point where you cannot get beyond the ad hominem attacks, which is a fallacy of attacking a person, and so to the point, time to move on. And then just be sensitive to the spirit. When is it time to move on, right? I, I, let's say I'm going to write college today, witnessing, get into a debate. Okay, bam, 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 bam. We said what we need to say. I'm not sensing they're listening anymore. I'll give them my information, move to the next one. That's just what the spirit says. I go there, I start debating. They start saying stuff about my mother like, or my children. What if I rape your children? What are you going to do? Well, I'll forgive you and love you, and trust me, you don't want to see what happens next. I'm done talking to you because that's just personal. That's just trying to attack me, see what I'm going to do, and I don't need to endure that, right? Uh, or, or they literally say, uh, we're going to blankety-blank kill you. We're going to blank. Well, I'm done debating now, and now I'm going to defend myself because in America, we have rights to defend ourselves, just like Paul used his Roman citizenship. I'll use my concealed carry and my taekwondo when I was in fifth grade and uh, just my beastly ways, right? Anyways, but, uh, you know, it's always, they always say, you know, what are you going to do if I hit you on one cheek, you know? Okay, well, I'm going to forgive you. What happens if you hit the next one? Jesus didn't say, so don't, you don't want to find out, you know? You don't want to find out. So the first one is free, after that it's on, right? But we'll see. Let you decide how you do that. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? What is this babbler saying? Because the reason why I thought they, he, he was a babbler is because he was not as skilled as they were. Uh, Paul even talks about his speech not being as good as the wise and the, and, and the more sophisticated. We know he's going to start quoting their poets. He's good, but he just may not be on that level. It seems even like of Paul's own uh, evaluation of himself that there were those who were more superior than him. And uh, I maybe could relate to that. I'm decent, but I'm no T.D. Jakes or I'm no William Lane Craig when it comes to philosophy. So I would know my limitations. I would probably be called a babbler too, right? So these kinds of things were common ways for them to insult you. Just What is this babbler saying? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Well, let's just hear what he has to say. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news, the gospel about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to a meeting place of the Arachalus. Aeropagus, 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 where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. Aeropagus means the rock of Eris, which is the Greek god of war. It's also known as Mars Hill, a little history here, because the Romans had their own god of war named Mars. That's why there's always two names attached to this. If you wanted to know, now you know. Verse 21, all the Athenians and the foreigners who who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. You can see kind of, you know, Luke give a little jab here. They're just wasting time staring at their navel, you know, asking how many angels can dance on the head head of a pin, you know. Uh, They do nothing but talk about things and listen to the latest ideas. That's how I take that. I think that is a little sarcasm there on Luke. On Luke's part. Verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Aeropagus, 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 and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. And I have a link about this whole story I'm about ready to tell you about. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and that is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The story of the unknown God is a story that revolves around this a poet 
right here, how you pronounce his name is Epidemus. Epidemus, how would you say? Epin, Epimenides. Epen, Epimenides. 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 Okay, so Epimenides, who he's going to quote in just a moment, in him we live and move and have our being. This man was used to come up with a solution while they were dying at this time. There was uh, In the past, they were dying, and what had happened was they were sacrificing to their gods. They were dying of a plague, and none of their gods were answering them. They go to um, Epimenides and ask him for help, and he says, hey, uh, probably our gods are not real. And uh, that's why they're not working. And there's probably a God that is real, that will help us, uh, but we don't know who he or she is. So let's do this. Let's send out some sheep, and wherever they stop and lay down, that's where we're going to start sacrificing them. And we're going to say these will become altars to an unknown God. And that God, if he's unknown, will have mercy on unknown to us, and he's real, and he can really help us, because we do believe there's a God out there that created all of this, then he'll have mercy on our ignorance, and he'll see our sacrifices to him or her as an act of humility. And so they did that with a 100 sheep. They sacrificed, made altars. This was one of the ones that were only remaining at the time. I think there was still a few around, but the one main one was here. And uh, the plague stopped, and now Paul says, I know that God. Oh, this is so amazing. You see what he's doing here? He's using the culture of their belief system and pulling out bits and pieces to show them that it can work with Christianity. Not that it's Christianity, okay? It's not what we call syncretism. It is not taking a little bit of the Day of the Dead from the pagans and putting it into the Catholic All Saints Day, the day before All Saints Day, all the Day of the Dead, right? It's not synchronism, like how the Latinos used to worship their dead, and now they put their dead priests in the temples there, you know. And the, you know. It's not syncretism. Like you'll see with the mixing of religion. No, what he's saying is there is some truth here in your culture, and all truth finds its way back to God. Here's how we get this. is because Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, verse 20, uh, he said, To the Jews I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. That's why he had Timothy circumcised. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I'm, I myself am not under the law. See how Paul says that? I'm not under the law. That's a good one to bring up to the black Hebrew Israelites. So as to win those under the law. To those who have not, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I'm not free from God's law, but though I'm free from God's law, excuse me, though I'm not free from God's law, but under Christ's law. You notice how he makes the difference. Christ's law is different than a Mosaic law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak I've become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. So he's becoming all things to all people, that he may save some. So he says, hey, this story about your unknown God, you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. That is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not to be served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. For from one man he made all the nations. That's where we get the idea of one race, the human race that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times and histories and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Epimenides. How do you say his name? Epimenides said that. And some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. That's Erastus. Erastus. 
Eratus. Eratus. Okay. If my wife was here, she would make me look so much better than how I look right now, right? Eratus. That's what he said. So we see that Paul is quoting their prophets, uh, poets rather, because he wants them to see that there is truth in what they have believed, but the fullness is in Christ. Now, if you notice, he gives us a theological understanding of how God moved among the nations before Christ and even during the time of the Mosaic Covenant for those who did not have the words of Moses. He says God puts them in these places, in these nations, in these times in history, in these boundaries. He does this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him. Though he's not far from any one of us. You see why this cannot be the Calvinistic handbook? See, is God saying... To, to the pagan nations, you're going to hell because I said you're going to hell? No, he gives even the pagan nations a chance to reach out to them, to reach out to him. But is that Pelagianism? Pelagianism says man can do it of his own free will. Or semi-Pelagianism, a man does his part and God does his part. No, 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 no. We don't believe in that. God is doing all of the work. See, God placed them there. God set the appointed times. God is the light of their conscience, and God is doing the drawing. From memory, John 1, verses 1 through 5. Listen, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made by Him. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Christ is the light of man's conscience, drawing them to the Father. Pre-incarnate, before he comes in the flesh, incarnate, before the flesh, in flesh, before Christ comes in the flesh, he's drawing the pagan nations through the revelation of Romans chapter 1, the revelation of creation and of conscience. In your conscience and in creation, he's showing himself to you. That's what Paul is saying. And so do we believe in what is called inclusivism? Yes, I do teach that. Inclusivism is not universalism. Inclusivism means that Christ, apart from the gospel, can work in people's lives, either preparing them for the gospel or saving them by the light that he gives them because the gospel can't reach them. Do you understand? Eternity in Their Hearts by Don Richardson talks about this story and others. I don't know where he stands on inclusivism, but the basic idea is that he gives examples of how when the light was coming, they would receive it even in these pagan nations, and then missionaries would come, and they would be waiting for them, having confirmation in their own culture, like an unknown God scenario where they were waiting to have the revelation of who the known God was. But Billy Graham takes a stronger stance as well as myself and Soteriology 101, and you can go to Leighton Flowers, and he made a video on this because many people, and I used to do this ignorantly, claim that Billy Graham was a universalist because he was an inclusivist. And they have a video with him with Robert Schuler saying that he believes in a wide path that even nations who have not heard of Jesus can go to heaven. And they then say that, and I used to believe this, that, that Billy Graham was saying that there's other ways to God. C.S. Lewis was also an inclusivist that was accused of universalism. Okay, some of the reformers have been this way, so it's not just non-Calvinist belief as well. You are an inclusivist like John Piper if you believe non-born-again children can go to heaven. That is a low form of inclusivism, is where do children go who have not been born again, who have not professed the gospel? If you're a strict Calvinist, you'll say like John Calvin, they're doomed from the womb, so all these aborted children, they are now in hell. 
God determined it. That is literally John Calvin's terminology, doomed from the womb. But if you are like John Piper and other Calvinists, you believe that God has mercy on them. Are you listening? So that's a lower form of inclusivism. Leighton Flowers makes a distinction, and he says, if you think inclusivism necessitates universalism, that all people will be saved, then you are not qualified to offer rebuttal. You are uninformed. If you think inclusivism necessitates pluralism, that one can be saved apart from Christ, then you are not qualified to offer a rebuttal. If you think all Christian inclusivists believe the exact same thing, you are misinformed. As with all labels, there are a variety of different explanations and variants that may fall under the label depending on which scholar you are addressing. So I am the kind of inclusivist, like Billy Graham, like Leighton Flowers, like C.S. Lewis, that believes that Christ does it and saves them by his blood, by them accepting the revelation they received. It's all from Christ, not from a false God. They cannot be a Muslim and be saved. They cannot be a Buddhist and be saved. They must renounce those things and seek an unknown God by their conscience to be saved under this kind of inclusivism. So I'm more of the middle road. The lowest form is the children only. I go children, and then I go to living adults. As long as they call upon the God of heaven and earth and know in their conscience they have sinned against that God and plead for mercy, they will be saved. That's what I believe, okay? Whoever confesses with their mouth Jesus is Lord is the fullness of the gospel, and that's why we must bring the missions to these lost people groups, all right? Okay? Uh, a full to the highest level of inclusivism, inclusivism might be right on the border of universalism, believing that a good Muslim who ignorantly worships Allah, not knowing the God of Israel, he still may be saved. So in another religion, he would have to do it out of ignorance, or she would do it out of ignorance. Think of a 13-year-old girl in Pakistan who's still praying five times a day. The high, highest level of inclusivism would say she may still go to heaven. I believe she has to do the opposite of that. She has to leave Islam. She has to say, I know this is not this. Uh, this is not the right way, but something else is. And that's, by the way, when so many of them get dreams and visions is when they start to know this, when they take the repentance approach from the false deity, okay? So I'm not the highest. I'm not the lowest. I'm right in the middle. But like I said, even Calvinists have low forms of it. So the people that go out on the Internet and try to call Billy Graham a universalist or people like me or Leighton Flower, C.S. Lewis, don't know what they're talking about. We're fundamental Christians. Church fathers have always disagreed on this. Why? Because the Bible is not clear. Where do people go who have not heard the gospel? It always says where people go who reject the gospel, but it never talks about unreached people groups. Are you listening? Can I hear an amen if you're listening? Thank you. So he did all of this so that we would reach out to him. That is the scripture. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any of us. And people might say, well, what about Romans 3? It says no one seeks after God. That's right. No one does it on their own, but he's the light of the world. He is the light of all men in their life. He is the light of their conscience. So it's still Christ drawing them in. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, not God's children, God's offspring. Do you notice the difference there? Children mean you're born again. Offspring mean you're his creation. Know the difference. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So we can see that it's still Christ-centered, Christocentric here. 
And the idea is what he overlooked was God didn't damn the Babylonians. He, didn't, he, let their, he let their posterity keep living on so that they could be saved, so that the nations could be saved. He's not saying, he's not saying that they, he was okay, that God's okay with the idolatry. He's saying he's okay with letting them live on and not destroying them all like Sodom and Gomorrah so that people from Babylon might get saved. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that point, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Demarius, and a number of others. Real quick, Paul then goes to Corinth, as we'll learn in the next chapter, chapter 18. And some people say that Paul was discouraged, that there wasn't a lot of people converted because he went the way of intellectualism. And we writes to the Corinthians, he now is saying he's changing his methodology. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are being saved, but to, us who are, uh, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher? of the sage has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world for since the wisdom of God the world through the wisdom didn't for since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe Jews demand a sign and Greeks look for wisdom but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles but to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser, wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength um, brothers, don't think when I came to you uh, that many of us were called. Excuse me. We don't think when I came to you, I came to you in um, a highfalutin calling. I just lost my mouse. Did you touch it right there, good sir? No. Okay. Don't think God chose the foolish things to shame uh, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Okay. So there's one last a controversy that comes up. Some people think that apologetics doesn't work, that using philosophy doesn't work. Uh, this was a place Paul did not do signs and wonders, did not preach a strong message of repentance. He only mentioned it briefly at the end, and he regretted it because it was such a low turnout. Not many people responded. It was a failure. The Mars Hill was a failure. Actually, some Christians believe that. Uh, that is not true. He did not consider it a failure. All that he says in Corinth, the next city he goes to, and the letter he writes to them just supports how he based his wisdom. He was a presuppositionalist. He did not base his wisdom upon the Greek philosophy, but upon the word of God. He didn't come to them, try to impress them with his philosophy. He came to them teaching the resurrection of Jesus. And is that not exactly what he preached at Mars Hill? Exactly what he says in Corinthians, what he did with them in the next city. He said, when I came to you, I did all of those things. Came with that foolishness. Well, that's exactly what he came there with, and that's when he got shut down is when, quote, unquote, he got so foolish to talk about Christ raising from the dead because that was the proof he offered them. Presuppositionalists offer proof, but they always do so from the acknowledgement that only God can give you the ability to examine the proof, that our God is the God of heaven and earth, the foundation for all truth. Amen? The axiom. So don't ever think that apologetics is not effective or that this was somehow a failure for him. No, it even says uh, people believed, a number of people, and that's amazing. Wouldn't that be awesome if a number of people at Harvard believed, philosophers believed, prominent women believed? We'd walk away saying that's a great testimony. So God used him to do that. Amen? Amen. And so here we see today, no matter what situation the disciples found themselves in, whether it was a revival or a riot, God continued to move as the gospel was preached, whether it was to the Jews, to the Greeks, or to the highfalutin philosophers of the Greek culture. The gospel was preached and new disciples were made. Isn't that awesome? He starts off there in Thessalonica, disciples are made. He goes to Berea, disciple, gospel is preached, disciples are made. He goes to Athens, gospel is preached, disciples are made. So no matter where we find ourselves in, we're supposed to do what? Preach the gospel and make disciples. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for this wonderful day. Help us to apply it to our lives.
to study, to show ourselves approved, to continue to walk in the signs and wonders of the gospel, to use uh, the, the wisdom of a man through the wisdom of God to preach the gospel like how Paul used the poets, and then, Lord, to stand upon the proof, the evidence, what may be foolish to others, that is the gospel, the, the resurrection of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Let us do this even if the world calls us troublemakers. Let us see, God, all the world come to know you and, and repent of their sin, even as we've prayed today for the black community and for the injustices there to stop and for uh, unborn children to live and for uh, their communities to become bastions of hope and, and for, uh, Lord, there to be justice in in immigration and for our nation to help the hurting around the world and Lord for the LGB community to know their identity in you Father and that we would not be labeled as the troublemakers but we would be labeled as those who are bringing forth the truth and the truth will set them free in Jesus name Amen